Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I'm doing a short talk called Did Jesus Need the Holy Spirit? This originally appeared as a blog post at the Center for Baptist Renewal. You can find the link there in the show notes if you want to go read that. Posted that back in December of 2020. But I want to talk through it a little bit today on the podcast because I think my listeners are tend to be interested in particularly theological interpretation, theological method, how we think theologically about biblical texts. And so I want to talk through this today, particularly thinking through how do we talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit and Jesus work in unity in Jesus's ministry. We have some answers like canonic Christology, which I think is problematic and we'll address a little bit here in this talk. But what are the, what are the options that we do have? What are some good options that we can have that are faithful to the biblical text, but also faithful to core Trinitarian principles so that we're not th- saying things that are incorrect or that could cause problems when it comes to how it is that the Father, Son, and Spirit work in salvation, and particularly how the Holy Spirit and Son work together in Jesus's ministry. So I hope you'll enjoy this talk. We are brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out all about their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you, as always, by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that Bible translation. And now, here's my short talk on Did Jesus Need the Holy Spirit? But first, no big deal. church, Jesus's baptism in Matthew chapter 3 was a paradigmatic Trinitarian text. Augustine, for instance, considered it one of the clearest pictures of the unity and distinction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the baptism scene, Augustine reasoned, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a trinity, inseparable, one God, not three gods, he said. This focus makes sense, of course, because it's one of the clearest texts in which the three persons appear together and is distinguished clearly from one another. The Father speaks about the Son. The Son is the one who's in the water. The Spirit comes down, quote, like a dove. Now, some have taken this passage, and other passages, of course, to assert canonic Christology. So, canonic Christology says that Jesus renounced some or all of his divine attributes in the Incarnation. That word canonic comes from the Greek word kenosis, empty, which shows up in Philippians 2, as we will cover here in a little bit. And so they say, since he has renounced some or all of these divine attributes in the incarnation, he needed the Holy Spirit to perform miracles and other signs. So I want to address briefly two related issues with holding to Crenotic Christology, this idea that Jesus divested himself of divine attributes. One of those will be a Trinitarian problem or issue, and then the other, a biblical one. So let's start with the Trinitarian implications. Now, I wrestled with whether to start with the biblical implications first, since much of this argument is centered around particular texts, and of course, good theology should be. However, I want to start with Trinitarian implications because these are drawn from the larger scope of biblical witness about the Trinity, and thus help us better understand passages that may be more thorny or confusing, like some of the ones that we will talk about today. So briefly, let's survey how canonic Christology undercuts a few basic historic affirmations about the Trinity. First of all, divine simplicity. God is simple, 
meaning that he cannot be broken into parts or have his attributes reduced or minimized. He cannot add to himself. He cannot take away from himself. God is God. He is whole. He is unchanging as Exodus and Deuteronomy and Job and Hebrews and James and all these passages tell us. And since Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God in every way, he could not cease to be God or divest himself of divine attributes. To divest oneself of divine attributes would to make one not God. The Nicene Creed says, quote, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being or one substance with the Father. So to say, as canonic Christology does, that he empties himself of divinity in any way would assert that he ceases to be one being with the Father. The Trinity would then become two persons, or perhaps three persons, but with only two persons exercising divinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. But God is Trinity, and God cannot be less than God, and thus he cannot in any way be less than Trinity, three persons, eternally and fully God without change. And these persons cannot not exercise divine uh, powers because they are divine. This would be akin to saying that you or I could not be human or have human attributes. How much more so when we talk about the eternal, unchanging God? Second, historic Christology teaches that Jesus is two natures in one person. As the Chalcedonian Creed summarizes, he is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but the property of each nature being preserved. So to say with canonic Christology that he empties himself of divinity in any way would assert that he was only and merely a human for some period of time, which would deny the property of each nature preserved, as the creed says. As stated above, God cannot not be God, right? Which means that he cannot not have all of his attributes and power. God can never not be powerful or loving or just or any other attribute. To claim that the Son puts his divinity on the shelf, as it were, causes serious concerns about the stability of the divine nature of the Son, and thus the whole Trinity, since they equally share in that divine nature. Third and finally, the doctrine of inseparable operations is helpful here. It says that God is one and not at odds with himself, so that the three persons of the Trinity are not individual wills or centers of consciousness on three individual islands, doing what they please apart from one another. Rather, the divine power and will is part of who God is, his essence, and is thus shared by the three persons. So Jesus doesn't need the Spirit to help him to do divine works. Instead, it's more helpful to say the Spirit works inseparably from the Son and the Father in creation and salvation. They are not dependent on one another in some sense that one needs divinity from the other or something like that, but they are truly and fully unified as the one triune God. Now, if these Trinitarian implications are true and drawn from large swaths of biblical texts about God, which I would argue that they are, then these more difficult individual biblical passages should be interpreted according to the larger interpretive rule. That, as Irenaeus says, we interpret the difficult passages by the clear ones. Now, I want to cover three texts here that are commonly raised in canonic Christology when it comes to trying to say that Jesus needs the Holy Spirit, which I would say is a problematic idea given some of the Trinitarian implications we just talked about. Okay, so Matthew 3, we mentioned already. In the case of Jesus' baptism, I would say we shouldn't conclude 
that he needed the Spirit's anointing to do divine work. Yes, there is a sense in which he doesn't perform miracles or signs until after the baptism, basically what we see in the Gospels there. But one, the miracles and signs are not the only way he exercises divinity in his ministry. And two, he would be divine even if he did not perform those miracles. It makes more sense of the Trinitarian implications above to say then that the Spirit's work is inseparable from Jesus's, not that Jesus, quote, needs the Spirit. Jesus's birth narratives clearly show that his divine nature being preserved or is preserved in the incarnation, right? He is the son of God. He is God with us. The whole idea of the Holy Spirit conceiving him, right? He is divine from the start. As soon as he puts on flesh, he is the God man, but he doesn't become the man who is God later, something like that. In fact, he is seen as a child wowing leaders in the temple with his knowledge and authority in Luke 2. His prayers in John 17, for example, state that he and the Father's relationship has not changed. It is the relationship that they have had before the foundation of the world. His inseparable work with the Spirit is really more of a pattern for the apostles who would later do the same works by the power of Jesus' name and through the Spirit. So the Spirit doing these works through Jesus is preparing the apostles for the work that the Spirit will do through them. This is just what the Spirit does. And when the apostles do it, they do it in the power of Jesus and the Spirit, whereas Jesus does these in his own power along with the Spirit. You can look at Acts chapter 2 to 3, for example. So Jesus wasn't merely a Spirit-empowered man who was setting up other Spirit-empowered men. No, he is God in the flesh, whose power is equal to the Father and Spirit's, and who all work through the apostles inseparably later on, as we see. Okay, so Mark chapter 13 is a good one. In this passage, Jesus claims to not know the future, to not know when he's coming back. Now, the obvious question is, if he's God, then he knows all things, right? Yes, but also he's a man. Remember the Chalcedonian Creed. He is fully God and fully man with no mixture or confusion. Gregory of Nazianzus, for example, uses a rule called partitive exegesis, in which he said that we should attribute divine actions to Jesus' divinity and human actions to his humanity. Now, it's not always that simple, right? We don't want to become Nestorians and say that there is a God Jesus and a man Jesus who do different things, that these are a one person, but this is one person with two natures. So it's not always that simple, but it's a, a good general rule of thumb to help you think through how is it that there are these different passages that might be contradictory, right? That Jesus is God and omniscient and yet at times doesn't know things. Okay, well, we must acknowledge that part of the mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus is both God and man. So there are sometimes, quote unquote, logical problems that we may not fully be able to reconcile. But that said, we're not required to say that Jesus's ignorance of the future must mean that he automatically divested himself of divine attributes. So Luke Stamps and I wrote extensively on this. I've talked about it on this podcast in a previous short talk that we must Deal with the fact that Jesus does these things, but affirm still that he is fully God and can't stop being fully God, or there would be a rift or a break in the Trinity. There'd be a lot more problems if we want to go down that road. Now, Philippians 2, chapter, five, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, this passage is where most of the attention often comes from for canonic Christology, because a form of the word kenosis is actually used explicitly here. Okay, so Paul says that Christ is, quote, Existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. And I think the CSB translation there is really good. You see grasped and some other things, but exploited 
think actually gets at the idea there a little bit and helps us understand theologically a little bit more what's going on there, whereas grasping feels like maybe he uh, can't get a hold of it or he loses it, but rather, no, he doesn't exploit it, right? He doesn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. Uh, But anyway, as, as chapter two says, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and by taking on the likeness of humanity. So for some, the quote straightforward reading is that Jesus divested himself of divinity and became a servant instead. Now, the problem, as we've outlined above, is that the Bible is remarkably clear that he never stops being divine, nor that God could, or would, for that matter, stop being all it is that God is in himself. Instead, in this context, what we see is that Paul uses Christ as an example for our humility. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ is God in all that it means to be God, right? He is, quote, in the form of God, but he chose not to exploit or grasp after or plunder his divinity. Now, we know this because he put on flesh and walked among us. God the Son could have stayed separate from us, enjoying heavenly riches, perhaps even saving us from outside of creation. And yet he didn't. In his intentional humility and love for us, he stepped into our mess. He emptied himself and became an obedient second Adam. So Paul's point is that we should be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others, even if it means not exploiting or grasping after the advantages that we still possess. In nowhere does Paul tell the Philippians to sell all their possessions or to renounce their rights, quote unquote. Rather, Paul instructs them to be like Christ, who didn't look out for his own self-interest, even though he had every right to. So nowhere in this passage's wording or context or scripture's larger picture about God is a canonic understanding required or even preferred in this reading. Now, some would describe our argument here as what is called classical Christian theism, which I happily take that label. Simply put, the Trinitarian affirmations and the biblical reasoning above are consistent with classic, historic Christian logic and conclusions. While canonic Christology might seem beneficial on the surface, it's ultimately a novel view that undercuts some of the most fundamental and basic biblical teachings about God. So, did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? I think that's the wrong question, and that leads to the wrong conclusions. Rather, we should ask, in what ways did Jesus and the Holy Spirit work inseparably for our salvation? 